You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. This is one of the most important conversations of our lifetime. Well, in the midst of a worldwide pandemic and an ever-evolving front with vaccines, there's so many questions that are on people's minds. And I was waiting back, keeping my eye on the data, really looking at things as they were coming out and being published. And I really wanted to be able to have a comprehensive understanding of things and a comprehensive definitive guide for folks. You know, a lot of people have been asking about this front, but the truth is there just really isn't enough data available right now. And we don't have much long-term evidence, long-term efficacy, because it just doesn't exist. And so even with that being a part of the conversation, it's important for us to stand in a place of logic and to look at the data that we do have from multiple perspectives. And so what I did was I reached out to people who had some published peer-reviewed evidence looking at the data regarding the vaccines. And one of the things that I came across, it just shocked me. It blew my mind. And this is a massively shared peer-reviewed study right now, but still a lot of folks don't know about this piece of data. And this is why I really felt it was important to put this show together now and to not wait any longer on any information coming in about any long-term benefit, any long-term side effects, because a fundamental principle about the efficacy right out of the gate in the clinical trials, there's a big gap missing. And so today we're gonna to fill that gap in and you're gonna be able to really understand the pieces of evidence that are being used in favor of new pharmaceutical interventions and what's not being shared with the public. And you should know this is a continuous story with how stuff works in our society where we really do have a massive sick care system. We don't have a healthcare system. We don't have a system that actually teaches people how to be healthy. Just think about that for a moment. We don't have a system that actually teaches people how to be healthy. We have a symptom-based system. We have a system that is focused on the treatment of symptoms of chronic diseases. We have a symptom system. And for me, just being a, a logical, rational human being and somebody who really loves science, if it was different, I would be all for it. I would be the biggest proponent of our healthcare system. But for me, we just have to really take a step back and look at the results. How's it doing? Is it bearing out really good fruits? Are we having really great results from the way that things have gone? Are we just stamping out our biggest killers and increasing human longevity? Is this the track that we're on? Well, you already know the answer to this. Right now here in the United States, right now we have about 43% of our citizens are clinically obese. And that was prior to the pandemic and the increased rates of sedentary behavior, the increased rates of processed food consumption, the increased rates of sleep deprivation, the increased rates of stress, and all manner of intrusions to the healthy performance of ourselves, of our DNA, of our genes, our genetic expression. There's been a big shift. And so it was gonna be, according to the latest statistics, about 10 years out when we hit 50% of our citizens being clinically obese, that window is now shortened significantly. And so all the while, with all of our so-called advancements in medicine, in technology, 
We are now the first generation in recorded history, in recent human history, that is going to have a shorter lifespan than our predecessors. We're at the first point where instead of the lifespan continuing to grow and extend, now it's gotten shorter. So just sit with that for a moment. Really think about that. Despite all of our innovations, despite all of our knowledge, we're the first generation in, in human history, in recent human civilization, that is going to die younger than our ancestors, than our predecessors, than the generation before us. Our children on that same track. So we've got to look at this. Is it working out? And if you just take a logical assessment, mm, it's not looking too good. We have a healthcare system that in 2019 alone, $4 trillion were invested into our healthcare system to bear out these types of fruits. These fruits are not, it's not like a nice, luxurious avocado. It's like when you open up the avocado and it's like Night of the Living Dead. It's like, who hurt you? Who did this to this avocado? It's not like an avocado... When you open it up, it just looks like it's raised in a nice home, lots of love, lots of nourishment, healthy access and routines, not that kind of avocado. This is the avocado that's possible. But right now, if we look at the fruits of our current system of healthcare, it's, it's not good. It's not good. But here's the beautiful part. We can change it because there's millions of wonderful people working in the system. And what is really needed is just a more evolved education because people want to save lives, but we've really been focused on treating symptoms and not removing the underlying causes of our greatest challenges, which according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of our most prestigious journals, the leading cause of our epidemics of chronic disease, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, is poor diet. And poor diet, I'm gonna keep saying this over and over again, it's just one component of physiological stress, because stress is really the big killer, all right? Poor diet is just one form of that. Sleep deprivation pours into that as well. Sedentary behavior, which is another epidemic right now. We're more sedentary than we've ever been. And with this current situation, it's gotten even worse. That pours into that overall stress factor. And so this is why we see all the different studies on sedentary behavior, increasing risk of all, death from all causes, Sleep deprivation, increasing risk of death from all causes. Poor diet, increasing risk of death from all causes. You put all these together, these are physiological stressors, chronic stressors that hundreds of millions of our citizens on a daily basis are living by and living with. And these conditions are abnormal. But again, we can change it. Making a shift in our education system, which we're going to talk a little bit about today, and increasing our ability to have critical thinking, to not just automatically take on a cookie cutter set of beliefs, and especially for treatment for our citizens in this one size fits all drug approach, for example. When we are all so metabolically different, our immune systems are so dramatically different, and many of these things are not being put into context. And so, but as we progress and move forward and really become advocates for ourselves, advocates for critical thinking, for logic, for evidence-based education, and also being able to understand the data because it's a language. That's a big part of the, the underlying launch pad and thrust of the Model Health Show is taking 
this language, when we look at peer-reviewed evidence that we have on so many different topics and making that make sense for everybody and making it in a way that's accessible so that people can know what's really happening. Because what we've been experiencing is that our education gets disseminated from us from entities that oftentimes aren't functioning from a basic underlying premise of health. And that's where the shift can take place. Because if we can start with health, let's start there. Let's ask different questions. What creates health instead of how do we treat this symptom? What are the components that actually create a healthy, sovereign, resilient human being? And let's make sure that those are the cultural norms. Let's start from there, start from health. We can make that a norm. It's gonna take some changes to the education system. It's gonna take some changes from the dissemination of information, because as you know, you turn on your television, television, you turn that on, most folks are getting their education through that medium. You know, if they're looking at their 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 news channel and their the experts that they put onto the news, and as we've demonstrated in some recent episodes, you know, these folks are often very consciously, intentionally curated to have a certain flavor of message that meets the approval of the entity that it's coming from. And every one of these entities, they have their own agenda. And so now again, today is such an important conversation because we're able to take a peek and really take a deep dive into the very best peer-reviewed evidence that we have right now. And understanding that the very premise of what's being done right now is not what most people think. And once we get this piece, we can start to move on from there in a way that's of a much higher level of efficacy. So I'm really, really excited about this. And before we get to that, make sure that you are taking care of your immune system with the basic principles. Again, our immune system is literally made from the food that we eat. Everything from our B cells, our T cells, our macrophages, neutrophils, natural killer cells, antibodies, all these different things we talk about, these entities are literally made out of raw materials that we provide our body. So powerful. And the question is, what are we making our immune cells out of? So this is obviously of the utmost importance, as well as our other lifestyle factors, but obviously our nutrition really does matter. And we've got tremendous amounts of peer-reviewed evidence on things that really help not just to build healthy immune cells, but also the, the intelligence of these cells. Because some cells, for example, if we talk about the process of angiogenesis or the formation of blood vessels for cells to get nut nutrition, cancer cells do the same thing, angiogenesis. And so there are certain foods that have documented peer-reviewed evidence of having selective anti-angiogenesis properties to cut off the blood supply to cancer cells. One of those foods is turmeric. And also scientists from the Department of Neurology at USC found that the active ingredient in turmeric, curcumin, is able to eliminate metabolic waste and reduce systemic inflammation. And something else really noteworthy about turmeric is that it's also been found to improve the function of your resident macrophage cells that really operate as a front line of your immune system, right? All this data exists. And this incredible source of nutrition has been utilized for centuries. But again, we wanna make sure we're getting it from a place with high integrity, organic. If we can get it, in a kind of a super critical extract, so it's really concentrated with high levels of curcumin, for example, that's what we want. But then you combine that 
with another study, this was published in the BMJ, found that COVID-19 ICU risk is 20-fold greater in people who are deficient in vitamin D. So a combination with turmeric for reduction of inflammation, a source of vitamin D, and also vitamin C, this is my favorite formula right now for the immune system and immune system fortification is the immunity from Organifi because it also has some of the most vitamin C dense superfoods ever discovered as well, along with bioavailable vitamin D3 and turmeric. And it tastes good as well. So pop over there, check them out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model. Check out the Organifi immunity. And on that note, let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Always Learning the Science by OA Science. This is a go-to for practical help for health and wellness, but you are not just getting tips. The science is solid and accessible, top-notch for why and how. Thank you for doing the hard work and bringing it to us. Thank you so much. That means everything. And that really leads into today's guest as well because this individual has authored over a dozen peer-reviewed studies in the U.S. National Library of Medicine of the National Institutes of Health in many of the most prestigious medical journals. And in addition to his epidemiological research on infectious disease and vaccines during the COVID-19 pandemic, his current areas of research include prevention of cancer, cardiovascular disease, dementia, and other chronic diseases. And his name is Dr. Ronald Brown. And Dr. Brown just really blew me away when I got a chance to review one of his most recent peer-reviewed studies, really looking at the difference in vaccine trials with relative risk and absolute risk. And this is one of the most important insights that we're really going to have in all of this experience with COVID-19 and the evolving conversation with vaccines. If we don't understand the difference with relative risk and absolute risk, we're really missing on a huge chunk of the conversation. So really, really excited about this episode and really excited to bring this conversation to you and keep this conversation going, expand it, expand our thinking, and really start to look at things from multiple perspectives so that we can really usher in some positive change and help to move our society forward. So let's jump into this conversation with the incredible Dr. Ronald Brown. Dr. Brown, can you share the details of your recent peer-reviewed study on the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine clinical trials. I'd be glad to, John. I just want to say that this problem between getting the, the information about the relative risk reduction versus the absolute risk reduction has been known for decades. And I'll, I'll get into the details, as you said, but I just want to just outline the overall problem. So people are not aware of this. It's not just the public. It's the practitioners, it's the clinicians, it's the doctors. They're not aware of this either. The people who are the most aware of it are the actual researchers who collect the data on these clinical trials, and they use relative risk reduction to compare the efficacy of vaccines between trials. So relative risk reduction, actually, that's the statistical version of what we call vaccine efficacy. Efficacy means how well does the vaccine work under experimental conditions as opposed to out in the population where you have unhealthy people, healthy people, and, and those conditions. So vaccine efficacy is really relative risk reduction. And those are the numbers, as you said, that are usually advertised for the Moderna and the uh, Pfizer vaccines. Uh, the Moderna was 
percent, something like that, and then 95.1 percent for the Pfizer. So that's pretty high. So the public thinks, hey, what do you got to lose? You know, you, in, instant protection. By the way, protection from what? It's not protection from death from the coronavirus. It's not even protection from hospitalization from the coronavirus or even severe illness from the coronavirus. And it's not protection from asymptomatic infections from the coronavirus. All it is is protection from mild infections. In other words, you have a positive infection test plus at least one clinical symptom. That's it. That's a problem because what we have, we, what we call breakthrough infections are infections in people who have been fully vaccinated. The problem is if, if you've been fully vaccinated and you think you're protected and you wake up one day with a sore throat, mild, how likely are you to report that and go back and get tested again? Well, I'm, I'm fully protected. I just have a little sore throat. Now, I don't know the answer, but I'm just proposing that those breakthrough infections are probably underreported. And the effect of that is that it makes the vaccines appear much more effective than they are. So getting back to the, uh, to the, cell, uh, to the vaccine efficacy, the relative risk reduction, before I describe exactly how that's calculated, let's talk about the absolute risk reduction. Okay, and, and to understand that, you have to understand a little bit of how a trial works. So here we go. You have a randomized trial. That means that you take all the people who are going to be in the trial and you randomly assign them to two different groups, the vaccine group and the group that gets an injection, but it's not the vaccine, it's saline solution. So the placebo group, okay? Now, why do we randomize people? We do that so that we evenly distribute all what we call the confounding factors between those two groups. Confounding factors are factors that give you the same result you're looking for, but for another reason, right? So how do you account for that? The best way to do that is to evenly distribute them between the two groups, at least theoretically. And therefore, what the difference that emerges between the two groups has nothing to do with, with anything other than the treatment itself. So that's why a randomized trial is considered the gold standard. So let's say you have 100 people, just as an example, in the vaccine group and 100 people in the placebo group. And let's say you have one person in the vaccine group who gets an, an infection. Because remember, what we're looking for in this trial is uh, whether people get a SARS-CoV-2 infection along with at least one symptom. That's it. So let's say there's, in this case, this example, there's one person in the vaccine group that gets the infection. And let's say there's two people in the control group that get the infection. Okay? So we call those infections events. And the event rate in the vaccine group is one out of 100. So 1%. And the event rate in the placebo group is 2 out of 100. So that's 2%. So what's the difference between 2% and 1%? 1%, right? There's your absolute risk reduction. The reduction from the treatment reduced the risk by 1% compared to the placebo group. That's all you need to know. That's, what, that's the clinically relevant statistic, the absolute risk reduction. But that, but that statistic is rarely given to the public. So where does the relative risk reduction come? Well, if you take the absolute risk reduction, divide it by the event rate in the control group, that gives you a relative risk reduction. In our example, that would be not just 2% or 1%, it would be 50% because you're dividing 1% by 2%. See, there's a mathematical property about dividing by percentages. You divide a number by a percentage, which is really just a decimal or a fraction, you get a larger number. 
not a small number. Usually when you divide numbers, you get a smaller number, right? In the case of a number that's a fraction or a percentage or a decimal, when you divide a number by a percentage, you get a larger number. So there's, that's the mathematical magic behind converting an absolute risk reduction to a relative risk reduction. So why do we do that? Well, because technically think of it this way. If you take the reduction in the risk of the disease from the treatment, that's the absolute risk reduction, right? How is that re uh, relative to the people who didn't get the treatment? The control group. So basically you're dividing the event rate in the vaccine group, the 1% at absolute risk reduction by the 2% in the control group. 1% divided by 2% is 50%. There's the magic, okay? Now, the FDA and some other groups have said, when you're dealing with the public, you have to let them know what both numbers are, not just the absolute risk. You gotta let them know both and the relative risk. Why? Because the relative risk isn't really relevant to public health and clinical outcomes. It's the absolute risk that people need to know. This is specifically what I want you to say. We know the relative risk. So the relative risk with Pfizer, 95%. Yeah. Relative risk with Moderna, 94%. What is the actual absolute risk for both of those? For the Pfizer, the absolute risk is 0.7%. And for Moderna, it's 1.1%. Now, I have to tell you, when I did the calculations for, for the Pfizer and I saw 0.7, I just stared at it like, wait, what is this? Is that 70%? No. Is it, you know, 7%? No, it's 7 tenths of 1%. 0 0.7 is 7 tenths of 1%. It's less than 1%. So that's the absolute risk reduction of the yeah. Pfizer vaccine. That's right. And for Moderna, it's not much different. It's 1.1%. That's dramatically different from yeah, the 95%. Yeah, tell me about it, you think? <laughs> that's marketed. But it's the thing is, the 95% is true as well. It's yes. just what's being shared with the public. There's yes. a part being left out. Exactly. So you're misleading people by leaving out other information to put the information you get into proper context, right? There's a word for that. Uh, misleading by omission, something like that, right? So, yes, it's true. It's 95 and 94% vaccine efficacy according to the standard way of doing it, you know, the relative risk reduction. And by the way, they've done it that way for decades, okay? Nothing new about that. Except for decades, the, uh, the uh, journal article editors and all these other agencies are saying, we need more information than that, especially when you're dealing with the public. And for decades, it's been ignored. That's why, and we're going back to what we, how we started this conversation, the timing was right now to put this information in front of the public. If there was no coronavirus now, if there was no pandemic, and if there, was no, there were no vaccines, and I put out an article like this, would anybody read it? No. That's the difference. Yeah, it wouldn't be of a concern. You know? So with this said, you said something a little bit earlier, which is important. If we're talking about Risk reduction from what exactly? All the things that you mentioned are not proven to reduce the risk of death, for example, reduce the risk right. of severe symptoms and hospitalizations. What are we actually looking at a reduction of? Mild symptoms? Because that's what was found in the clinical trials that did found, find efficacy. And I want you to talk about this a little bit because I went, because of your inspiration, I went and dug in even deeper and something jumped out at me that it just didn't jump out before, which was the fact that the outcomes from the clinical trials was largely based on healthy people, not the people who are most at risk 
for SARS-CoV-2 in the first place. Exactly. All they needed to have in the clinical trials was 25% of these folks, maximum 40, but it's such a fraction of people who actually could use some protection, hopefully if this was done correctly. You know what? You're, you're opening up the conversation now into what we call observational studies because that's what you have to deal with in real life. Not just all healthy people, right? Even, even the older healthy people, or rather, either, even the older people in the trial were healthy, basically. But in reality, most of the, the unhealthy people are the older people. So how is the vaccine going to work there? Now, there have been some what they call uh, post-marketing, I love that word, post-marketing studies, you know, by the FDA and, and by the CDC to evaluate, you know, how well are these vaccines working now that it's out there, now that it's being sold, right? And of course, they're saying, oh, it's wonderful. Look, you see all the people that we looked at, they're all in great health, except there are several problems here that an observational study cannot control for. Number one, an observational study cannot establish causality. You don't know if any of these symptoms, you know, or lack of them are actually have anything to do with, you know, being caused by the vaccine itself. You just don't know. There's no way to show that. In, the, in a randomized trial, you do have causality. This is the whole point of the randomized trial. So you can't just look at some observational studies and say, Oh, this contradicts everything we knew about in the randomized trial. No, you can't do that because the level of evidence is way, way lower. You can never prove causality in observations. And why is that? Because there are so many confounding factors that you can't always control, even though they try to control them. You know, they use these logistic regression models and they have all these variables for all these other confounding factors. But how do you know how to estimate that properly? And how do you know which confounding factors, you know, you don't even know about? So that's the problem with observational studies. And, and one of the biases in observational studies, and I mentioned this in one sentence in my article, is what we call healthy vaccinee bias. So as it turns out, people who are healthier tend to be more likely to get vaccinated. I don't know why. Well, I guess they think, because they think it's, you know, it's going to make them even more healthy. So if you have healthy people who are more likely to be vaccinated and you go out and you observe, you know, how many infections are we getting in the vaccinated people versus the unvaccinated people? And by the way, the unvaccinated people are the people who are, tend to be more, it goes across all socioeconomic, uh, you know, levels, but the lower socioeconomic levels tend to be less, you know, likely to become vaccinated. And they also tend to have greater, you know, incidence of coronavirus for other reasons, which you can, we can go into that later. So you have built-in bias when you're trying to conduct these observational studies. You can never use those to overrule what you found in the clinical trial. So I hope I answered your question a bit there. Of course, of course, yeah. That's the thing too. I've been staying on top of the, the data of like what, what's coming out in the population because I know it's gonna be leveraged but it doesn't account for anything that we know for certain to be true. Exactly. It's just like using this data, just be like, you know, everything, look how everything's going. Everything's going really well. But the, what, we, what I'm concerned about, again, is informed consent and what was used to leverage this and put it out on the market in the first place, which was withholding the absolute risk reduction, which as you mentioned, with the Pfizer vaccine, it's less than 1%. 
and with Moderna being 1.1%. And on top of that, not for, for the most part, and again, this is why we've seen so many of these very different tactics and mandates done, was to protect those who are most susceptible, right? So we know today here with the, with the uh, CDC, their latest report, 94% of the people who lost their lives in association with SARS-CoV-2 had an average of four pre-existing chronic diseases and or comorbidities, right? And we know that about 80% of folks were obese or overweight. We know that diabetes, hypertension, obesity, these were all three of the biggest comorbidities. So we know that this is the case and we know that advanced age is the case, but yet in the clinical trials, only a small percentage of people were of advanced age and also only a small percentage of people had a chronic disease or both. The majority didn't have chronic diseases and we're not of advanced age. And so it's not even getting viable data to protect those most vulnerable. That's a great observation, Sean. Good for you. Thank you. It was your inspiration. I don't really have much <laughs> more to add to that. Your, your point is totally valid. Good job. Thank you. You know, when you start to dig into this and you, you look at it from multiple perspectives, that's the thing is it's so overwhelming. There's a lot of data and you can bury some things as well pretty easily and omit things. Yeah. And that's another big concern that I have is even going through this and trusting these entities in the first place, because this is what I want to talk to you about right now, because I'm very, I'm very pro um, things that work. So if we do have an, an, an ethical manufactured drug, for example, that is going to be effective, whatever, I'd be the biggest proponent for it. Me However, too. understanding, and I know this is why I love talking with you because we're coming from that place we got to look at what are the systems and the metrics that are behind the scenes right now, because I don't think folks really, really understand. And I want to want you to talk a little bit about this, is that this technology is brand new. It's, it's never been approved by the FDA. What we have on the market right now is not approved by our gold standard of uh, medical testing of, with the FDA. We bypassed that with this emergency access for folks, which even that that just came to fruition a couple years ago, making that legal to do in the first place. I think it was like 2017, conveniently. So even this, this new technology being available, this isn't bypass, it's bypassing our normal systems of testing. Okay, let me try to follow up on what you just said, because you brought up at least three or four different issues here. <laughs> so let me go back to the issue of who's responsible for telling the people the information they need for informed consent. Well, one of the organizations is the Food and Drug Administration. And, they, and in my article, I cite a document and I actually quote a passage from it that says it is the responsibility of you know, the researchers to release all the information, the absolute risk reduction and the relative risk reduction to the public. This is the FDA that said that. Who? conducted the advisory committee to authorize these vaccines. It was the FDA. The FDA advisory committee didn't follow the FDA's own guidelines on how to communicate with the public. Now, in my article, and I didn't want to really bring this out, but this is a good time because you can see I'm getting a bit emotional about this. There's one citation reference that lists all the people who are on that advisory committee. And it's very easy to look up their contact information. And I had already thought, you know, why don't I email all these people and say, how did you ignore the FDA's own guidelines? What's your 
excuse. What's your explanation? And I was just about to do that. And I thought, what's the point? Really? I mean, think about it. Are they going to say, oh, you're right. Oh, we made a big mistake. Let's, let's go, go back and do it over. No, come on. Come on. They're not going to do that. So then what's the point? You know, they're going to ignore me. That's probably the, the main thing. But if enough people start asking that same question to the FDA advisory committee using the evidence that I put into my article, maybe something will start to happen. And I'm glad we're doing this interview now so that I can put that idea in front of the public. Thanks to you, you're allowing me to share that idea. So if you look at my article, there's all the information you need to track down all the people who are responsible or, or irresponsibly not allowing this information to get out to the public. So that's the, the first thing. You have to refresh my memory. The other point. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, this, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that because we don't really understand. Again, a lot of folks are just very hands off with this situation. And you said this earlier, and this is prior to us even getting going. Uh, I don't know if we got this in here or not, but you really brought forth one of the most important things, which is when you initially started working on your first uh, degree, you had to go to a library. You had to go and like search for information. Now we've got everything at our fingertips, but in a sense, it hasn't made us any more knowledgeable. We have access to a tremendous amount of data, right. but folks are just kind of scanning and taking bits and pieces and not actually sitting with things and thinking about things. We're still getting our, our, our ideas kind of sold to us or even inundated in our lives based on these other entities outside of ourselves who are clearly more smarter than, than us. Let me, let me and, talk about that. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Those entities are experts, okay? So we rely upon experts and in our complicated society, it's, it's the more efficient way to do things, right? But when our experts are unreliable, we have a problem. And this goes all the way back to my first article that I published on the coronavirus with the, um, the director of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases telling the public that the coronavirus was 10 times more deadly than the flu. In front of Congress, it turns out that was wrong. And my article proved it. I put together all the information to track down how those calculations were made and where the errors were. So you could read that and, and figure it out. It has to do with the difference between an infection fatality rate and a case fatality rate. I can get into all of that. But here's the real point. If we can't trust our experts, and if the experts themselves aren't vetted by other experts, and they become little dictators and autocrats and just say whatever they want to say to control people, we've got a big problem. So, I can't, you can't expect the public to go and look at all the data and do it all themselves. Maybe a guy like you and a guy like me, you know, enjoy doing that, but you can't expect the public to do it. All you can expect is that the experts are going to be knowledgeable and honest and open enough to give the public all the information it needs. And if they're not getting it, the public should stand up and demand it. That's again, and I circle back once more, that's why this kind of an interview podcast is really important to, to put that in front of people. Now I can yeah. talk a little bit more about infection fatality rate and the case fatality rate if you want. 
It's like the absolute risk reduction and the relative risk reduction. It's all this jargon, right? Yeah. So I definitely I want to talk about that. Okay. And I want to highlight something really quickly to to put a an exclamation point on your last statement. And I refer to it as this education bias, right? We we tend to believe that somebody has this education in a particular track, right? A particular way of thinking, but not really realizing that the education in and of itself can be incredibly deficient or can be misdirected and misguided in and of itself. And what that leads to is I have a degree in this thing, but yet I don't really understand this thing. And so just to give a context with health really quickly is that, you know, if we go to school, you know, many of my friends and colleagues, you know, I have a traditional education as well, but we can go to school for 12 years to get a, a medical degree and do clinicals and all that kind of stuff. And then we're focused on cardiology and the human heart. And if you ask somebody, you know, which I have, what is the heart made of? And then, you know, it's cells. Like that's kind of the thing that jumps up. But what are those cells made of? They're made of food. So where's the, the connection here with food and, you know, the tissue of the heart, you know, the myocardial, the muscle, and also the fat. The heart is about 20% fat. Where are all these resources, these raw materials coming from? And then we see such a lack of education around what the heart is made of in and of itself. Not that it's everything, but it's one of the most important things. And it's okay. lacking in the education in and of itself. You know, I'm trying to restrain myself from, from interrupting and just jumping in with my, my thoughts before I lose them, right? Education, exactly. We need to be educated in research methods. Yes. This is the problem. And I actually mentioned this in my first article. How many times do I talk to people who don't understand the difference between causation and correlation? About 99% of them. You know, when I took my first research method, that was the whole point of that course. If you didn't learn anything else, at least leave the course understanding the difference between causation and correlation. In other words, just because two bits of anecdotal evidence occur at the same time or go together or before something else happens, doesn't mean that that caused something else to happen. You can't just go by the temporal relationship. There are other factors you have to look at to establish causality. And people just don't understand that. They think, well, you know, we had a lockdown and the cases went down. Well, well, yeah, you're going into the summertime. Cases always go down in the summertime. Well, that's nothing to do with it. Well, it has a lot to do with it. You can't say that it was caused by the lockdown. Right. How do you know? Maybe it was. And again, I'm being fair too. Yes, I'm not yes. saying it wasn't, but they, they're saying it is without considering other things. And I'm saying, no, you have to consider everything. And then we have to decide, you know, through experimentation, which is and randomization trials and all that kind of stuff. What is the cause here? Right. But we're not educated to do that. That's the first thing. The only people that are really educated to do that in the health area are epidemiologists. They know that. Because you can't get anything published, you know, uh, and if you're just going to express your opinion and, and make declarative statements that this causes that, unless you prove it or at least show the evidence that can lead to more, you know, experimentation. Because so you learn to think that way as an epidemiologist. But people, the public can't think that way. They don't think that way. Now, maybe we should teach them to think that way a little bit. It wouldn't hurt. You know, reading, writing, arithmetic, and oh yeah, research methods. At least just right. one course. One course to, to think that way. And so, and the other thing is, even the educated people, they're so narrow in their little silo 
that the information they have is, is almost irrelevant to anything around them. You know, there's a saying that an expert is somebody who knows more and more about less and less until they know about, they know absolutely everything about nothing. <laughs> so that's what we've got here, you know, yeah. and we need interdisciplinary approaches. We need transdisciplinary approaches yeah. where you get people who know a little bit about that heart muscle that you're talking about and a little bit about the nutrition, right? And a little yeah. bit about the diseases. And then you get the big picture and you can see how it all fits together in a puzzle. And that's when you start coming up with insights about, okay, how can we, how can we change the outcome of this, right? It's not just a question of what drug are we going to take or what operation, all right? And by the way, it's not just a question of what food we're going to eat either. It has to, you have to look at all of it. You know, there are some people who are very skeptical and they won't look at anything except what they know. Right. On the other hand, there's other people who are completely open minded, but too open minded. They, they, they're not rigorous enough in, in making determinations. So they accept everything. You know, just like I said, the expert knows more and more about less and less until they know everything about nothing. A philosopher, for example, knows less and less about more and more until they know nothing about everything. So take take your choice, whether it's you know you spread out too too thin or you're just going too deep and narrow. You need something in between, something all around that embraces all of that stuff. And you're not getting that when you have public health people who are just, I hate to say this, I'm gonna get in trouble, I don't care. <laughs> no, I do care. <laughs> Physicians, you know, if you're an MD, great, but unless you're a PhD also, you don't have that research method training. You can't look at the cases and the ICUs, you know, being filled up and determine exactly what's causing it and what we can do, you know, to address a problem. Because you don't have that training in the research methods to identify causative determinants, right? And how to modify those determinants. You just don't think that way. And yet those are the people that are running the show. Yeah. You know, I'm so grateful to have this conversation because, I mean, right now, this is the beautiful part about all of this mess is that we have an opportunity to change it, you know, because again, folks, these are very smart people, but if we're not trained in the proper way of thinking and especially critical thinking and especially research methods and being able to put stuff together and make sense of things rather than this very dogmatic view of how things are supposed to be. And so one of the biggest breakthroughs that I've seen with myself and also people who are really uh, at the top of this field, I got to a place where I realized that everything is an option. Everything is an option and a possibility, even stuff that I don't know, that I'm not associated with. And to have this kind of curiosity and openness, but yeah. also knowing that there's a tenet, there's a basic, there's some basic principles that we do know. You know, just like with the laws of physics, you know, there's even the way that we operate with medicine, it's just not even in basic principles of physics, which is, this is one of the things I was told with dealing with the health problem. Well, these is, this is something that just happens. Nothing just happens. There's always a causative force behind Thank everything. We exactly. might not be able to explain it. And so this is a good place where I would love, and I mentioned this to you also in our conversation that we had a couple of days ago. The first person I reached out to when all of this stuff started to happen was a prestigious epidemiologist friend of mine, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first person that I reached out to to make sense of this stuff right. because of the ability to analyze and understand the data. Yeah. Because what even with some of the, again, most intelligent, educated in their framework, folks, my colleagues, for example, some of my colleagues, they'll grab a piece of data 
and ride that out as the truth. Yeah. Because this set of other people gave it, gave it to them. Let me, let me jump in. An epidemiologist needs to do follow-up studies. You can't make snap decisions. You need case control studies. You need serial surveys to analyze the severity and the prevalence and the incidence of the disease. That takes a long time. So, in the, so the epidemiologists are kind of being pushed out of the, of the equation right now. So you have the technicians who are coming up with all these new genomic sequences, you know, for these viruses that probably have been around forever. We don't know. Again, I'm not saying they have, they are or have been, but I'm saying we don't know. But people are making decisions as if they do know that it's a brand new virus that's never been seen before. And therefore, you know, we all, the sky's falling. We all, you know, need to lock everything down. You're missing a link. That information should go from the, the technicians over to the epidemiologists who can say, okay, let's see how dangerous this really is. Let's do a serial survey. Let's see how many antibodies people have to this in the entire population so we can see how widespread it is. It takes two years to do that. In the United States right now, there's a serial sur survey being conducted by Dr. Fauci's own institute, and he has never mentioned it. Never. It's a serial survey that st was started in March 31st, 2020, and it will end a year, two years later, in March 31st, 2022. It's going to be a representative sample of the United States population to see how widespread the coronavirus is. Because when you see the infections, you include all the people who were never sick. And that dramatically lowers the fatality rate. That's why the infection fatality rate is always lower than just the case fatality rate, which what you get is, you get that at the beginning of, of the outbreak. When you're just looking at only sick people, when you look at the whole population, you come up with an entirely different number. Now, what if that number turns out to be the same as influenza? Then all of this was over nothing. Well, not nothing, but it's no dangerous than influenza, right? How do we know that? Well, we won't even know that for another year. But is that stopping people from doing these crazy lockdowns and all these other uh, non-pharmaceutical non -pharmaceutical interventions that the World Health Organization itself said had weak evidence to support their use? No, we're going right from the genome sequences to the public health authorities and politicians who are making these dumb decisions. And in the process, violating all of our rights and our freedoms. You know, that's a whole other problem because this never started until China locked down its society and the World Health Organization said, oh, look, China locked down everything and the cases went down by 80 percent. They did in February 2020. And then they said everybody should stop doing what they're doing and start doing what China did. And guess what? They did, except we're not getting the same results. What's the difference? The difference is and this is a third article that's under peer review right now, China changed their case definition. In China, you are not infected with the coronavirus unless you have pneumonia. But even more than that, even if you have pneumonia, only if they can't find any other pathogen normally associated with pneumonia and they find the coronavirus, only then will you be considered a case. That eliminates practically all the cases, because the fact is 
86% of people who have SARS-CoV-2 infection have co-infections. They have other infections. If you're eliminating those cases, what's left? There's nothing left. And if you look at any graph on the number of deaths in China over the past 11 months or so, the number of deaths from the coronavirus, do you know how many there were? Tell me. Take a guess. It, it's, I think we can maybe even count on our hands. Two. Dang One hand. hand. Two people. That, do, Two. that doesn't make any sense. That makes it, no sense. It makes sense when you think of the reason why. Because they changed their case definition. Right? And we did, we the, did opposite, the opposite, didn't we? We, we did the opposite. We broadened our case definition. The World Health Organization said, you know what? If you ask the World Health Organization, what's the name of the coronavirus? What's the, the viral name? They won't say it's SARS-CoV-2. They call it novel coronavirus 2019. That's why the disease is novel coronavirus 2019, which is another problem because you're not supposed to name a disease after an infection. You don't name AIDS after HIV. You don't call AIDS HIV disease. They're separate. Because once you make the infection the disease, anybody who has the infection, even if they're not sick, has a disease. And so how does that affect your mortality rates? Now you're including all these people who are asymptomatic, right? And they might die of cancer or heart disease or anything else. But if they had that asymptomatic infection, now they also died of coronavirus. All because of the definition. And the World Health Organization definition specifically took out the word SARS. Do you know why? Because in 2003, during the SARS pandemic or epidemic, I think it was a pandemic, China suffered economic uh, results, adverse effects. And so the World Health Organization decided they weren't going to allow that to happen to China again. And in the process, they threw out the baby with the bathwater. I have nothing against you know, protecting uh, countries from something that, uh, that they don't deserve. But when you change the whole name of the virus and the case definitions and you broaden it like that and the mortality rates skyrocket, even though these people aren't really sick, and then the public health people use that to, to frighten people and then use China's totalitarian lockdowns to lock down people when China's lockdowns never reduced the cases in the first place. It was the case definitions that did. Now, this is coming out my third article, peer, it's being peer reviewed right now. And this is the kind of evidence that people need to talk about and to demand answers and to further investigate. Don't just take my word for any of this. Investigate it. It's all based upon evidence. I don't write articles where I just spout off my opinions. I have no opinions when I go in to write an article. I'm a blank slate, kind of like what you were saying. You know, I let the evidence tell me, you know, follow the trail of the evidence. Where is it going to end up? And this is what I found. And I didn't use any other information that is not available to anybody else. So anybody can verify this. But until we get out of this problem, the genie is out of the bottle. Once a society learned how to use totalitarian lockdowns, we'll always be susceptible to having them imposed upon us again, unless we stand up together as a society and demand an outlaw to, to lockdowns forever. We should never have this. The normal way this is done is if a new, a new pathogen emerges, public health investigates it within the framework of our rights and freedoms. They don't say, oh, we don't know anything about this. Shut everything down. We never did that before. <laughs> Why are we doing yeah. it now? Because the World yeah. Health Organization said, well, China did it and it worked. It didn't work. It didn't work. You can verify that.
Yeah, so this is powerful. We have to have a grassroots up movement because the people at top are not going to reverse themselves. It's too late now, right? Too much sunk costs, as, as it says, sunk cost bias. So how is this going to change? We have to demand the answers from the bottom. So I've been talking about, you know, writing to the FDA advisory committee and demanding answers. Why aren't we getting all the information we need to inform consent? You know, asking the World Health Organization and, and, and all the people that, you know, are supposed to be in contact with the World Health, World, World Health Organization. What's going on here? You're giving us faulty information. And look at the results. And this fear-based campaign, why does, you know, Dr. Fauci go out and, and scare everybody and say this is 10 times more dangerous than the, than the flu? You know what? He wrote an editorial with two other people back uh, before his congressional testimony in February in 2020. And he said the case fatality rate of influenza was 0.1%. No, it's not. That's the infection fatality rate. He doesn't even know the difference between the two. They're two completely different groups of people. And you know that the, fa the infection fatality rate is way lower than the case fatality rate. Can you talk about this? This was in your first study right. that I got a chance to review. Peer-reviewed study, amazing. This is, this is the exact information in there. And so then he goes to Congress and he says, well, the coronavirus case fatality rate based upon the information we have now from China is 2 to 3%. Okay, that's right. Actually, the case fatality rate of influenza, like in 1918, was also 2 to 3%. That should tell you something right there. We're not dealing with anything much more different than influenza. But then he said, let's compare that to the 0.1% case. Oh, he didn't use the word case fatality rate in testimony. He just compared, he reduced the 2 to 3% to 1%. And then he compared it to the infection fatality rate of 0.1% in influenza. So he's comparing a case fatality rate of coronavirus which he reduced from 2 to 3% to a 0.1% infection fatality rate of influenza. This is like comparing apples and oranges. You can't compare two different groups like that. But he didn't care. He just said, well, look, the coronavirus is 10 times more deadly than influenza. It's silly. Now, I'm trying to figure out how he made his mistake. He could have made it another way. He could have just said, well, you know, 2 to 3%, if we, if we take into account all the uh, asymptomatic and mild infections, that would reduce it to 1%. So in other words, he's, he's trying to approximate an infection fatality rate. That would be good if he did that and then compared it to 0.1% to of influenza, except for one major problem. Where do you come off just pulling 1% out of the air? Based upon what? I'm sorry, I'm kidding. <laughs> It's, why didn't he say 0.5%? Why didn't he say 0.2 or 0.1%? He's just making things up. You know, I, I can't waste my time trying to figure out how Dr. Fauci messes things up because it'll drive you crazy. I don't know, but it's messed up. It's not true, okay? He's undependable. This is the type of expert that we're relying upon to make these decisions for us. That's why it's important to understand, to go back and look at the evidence of how he gets everything wrong. Whether it's vaccines or the case fatality rate of influenza, right? Or, or the World Health Organization in China. I mean, this is a big mess. This is a total mess. And for people to sit back and say, well, you know, as long as we get the vaccines, everything will be okay. We can forget about this. Give me a break.
What's going to happen next fall when we go into the next influenza season again and the cases start rising again? Remember I said the genie's out of the bottle? Yeah. We're going to go right back to lockdowns again. We're never going to get out of this until we expose how this we were misled into this by the World Health Organization. And by the way, when I'm talking about China, I'm talking about the government. OK, this is just a, a, a dictatorship, a communist uh, authoritarian, totalitarian government. And we're adopting their techniques. And you know what? I've made some speeches about this, but this is this is a soundbite, okay? Here it is. They tore up our rights right in front of our faces. They tore up our freedoms right in front of our faces and told us it was for our own good. Think about that. And they'll do it again. You just said it. You just said it. We took that model and we put it in place. It was a new thing we had never done before, based off of very loose information in the first place. But instead of admitting that it didn't work, they've just continued to, to double down on it, right? Initially, it was just to flatten the curve. And then another curve happened and another curve. And the, it's just gotten more and more curvy. Well, but, now... Can I interrupt with these variants? It's another yet another excuse to continue to broaden the case definition. And as you talked about earlier, when we talked, you said we've let we've let it out of the box. Yeah. And so now it's it's just a tactic that you can go to. But instead of again admit, admitting that it hasn't worked, and here's the, I want to ask you about this, because when it's put in place and it doesn't work, we don't get the outcome. Because here in Los Angeles, when I went out during that time during this lockdown, because I had physical therapy. I got on the highway and I could look both directions and there was nobody. It was like a, a it was like a movie. It was like a dream. It was like some kind of weird scenario to see in the first place. People did the thing, but yet it's framed as though if people would just listen, if people would just do what we're saying to do, all this would oh, go away. It's our fault because we're not doing it good enough. The politicians, instead of admitting their incompetence or at least will, being willing to consider that they're making incompetent decisions are blaming the people. Enough of this. We have to stand up. We have to resist. We have to fight for our rights and our freedoms. This is the only way out of this. I want to talk to you about your understanding of, okay, so we, we know that Coming into it, like, for example, you have to check your biases at the door. It's one of the things that you talked about a little bit earlier, coming into the data with an open, clean slate, right? right. So we all, being human, we have natural tendencies, biases. You got to check your biases at the door. And so for myself personally, I've got a bias towards, you know, wellness, doing things that I know based on the, the most literature that we have, what our kind of our DNA expects from us, you know, movement food, sleep, these basic tenets. And anything outside of that, it rubs, it starts to rub up against my bias, but I got to check myself because I've seen it in my clinical practice, lisinopril being effective, metformin, all, everything has its place. Now, here's the thing. When we hear the news that we've got a vaccine, it's been found to be 95% effective. Immediately, not, not my bias against the thing, I'm, I'm more like, wow, that sounds amazing. That's incredible that they were able to do this so quickly, but that's not the truth. I mean, it is, there's the thing, what you share with me, it is true, Exactly. but it's the framing of it because the absolute risk reduction, again, is less than 1%. Right. And also what is, it, what is and I'm so glad you brought this up earlier, 
what are we reducing the risk of? It's not reducing the risk of death. Right. It's reducing the risk of mild symptoms. Yeah. In the clinical trial, going back and, and looking into this data more, thanks to your encouragement, it was somewhere in the ballpark of like one in 35,000 people passing away during the clinical trial, whether it's a control group or placebo group, right? We just didn't see it, not even from the controls who weren't even getting the vaccine. And so, and part of that, of course, is not really looking at the most at-risk population. And the thing that I want to ask you about in the same context is, what is a potential downside here? Because I don't think a lot of folks realize that, again, when you take an action, there is an associated possibility of risk. And so some of these things can get really get downplayed. In the study itself, we're looking at the Moderna data and Pfizer data, and also Johnson & Johnson. I took some time and dug into all of these. You know, we see this slew of side effects resulting, and the clinicians, the people, you know, who are conducting the trial, letting folks know, hey, if you start to get some symptoms of, you know, chills, fever, take some yeah. drugs to suppress the symptoms. Oh, right? wait a minute. I got to interrupt you. Yep. I thought that was the whole point of taking the vaccine was that you wouldn't have those symptoms. So now you're telling me, think about it. Yeah. That was the whole point of taking the vaccine. Oh, by the way, you're going to have the symptoms because that's one of, the, one of the effects of the vaccine. Wait, I thought I wasn't going to have symptoms. That's the whole point. Well, how can you not have symptoms unless you have symptoms? It's double talk. It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I have to be honest. I haven't studied the safety issues because there's nothing to study. There's no data there. For crying out, you know... Do you know, I think I told you this, the joke about the lab mice and one lab mouse says to the other, are you going to get the coronavirus vaccine? The other mouse says, are you kidding? They haven't even finished testing it on humans yet. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing there. We, we don't even know. We just don't know. Okay. Yeah. There's the answer. So That's I can't say, yeah. yes, we don't it's know. It's dangerous. No, it's not dangerous. Nobody knows. Let's be true. Nobody knows. That. That's, That's the exact the thing I was going to ask you about. Right. That's the exact thing I was going to ask you about. Yes. And there seems to be this groundswell of certainty and any concerns get brushed under the table. So here's, I, I'm going to share this direct quote. This is from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine trial. Following the administration of the vaccine, right. fever, muscle aches, headaches appear to be more common in younger adults and can be severe. For this reason, we recommend you take a fever reducer or pain reliever oh, if symptoms minute. appear after receiving the vaccination. But, but, but what are the symptoms of mild coronavirus infection? Fever, muscle aches. You know, the same thing. And what this could have led to, and this is um, a, a BMJ review of the, the data, this could have led to a greater suppression of COVID-19 symptoms following vaccination, translating to a reduced likelihood of being suspected for COVID-19, reduced likelihood of getting tested, and therefore reduced likelihood of meeting the primary endpoint. But in such a scenario, the effect was driven by the medicine and not the vaccine. Were they told to take... I don't know. I'm asking you, were they told they to were take told. The medicine during the trials? <laughs> yes. Well, so that's the point. So they're introducing another factor, a confounding factor. It know? makes no sense, but did, nobody did they knows this stuff. that factor? Did they say, well, we'll take these we'll take these people out because they had this? I know. It makes sense. And also what you know, that leads like to that as Dr. well. It's like that Dr. Fauci thing. You'll drive yourself nuts trying to figure out exactly how they messed up. And what that, that leads to as well is an unblinding, an inadvertent unblinding. Potentially, because, you know, the physician, if they find out that the person is having some symptoms and knowing that, hey, there's a chance it's probably the vaccine or even with the person, like, I know I got this vaccine, so I'm having these symptoms. 
it can just create some muddy water, I think. Exactly. How do you distinguish the adverse effects of the vaccine from the mild effects of the infection? They're the same. We got a problem here, folks. So it's totally arbitrary as to how it gets diagnosed. And you would think that they would just, you know, test people anyways. But in, in one of the other studies, they said that investigators should use their clinical judgment to decide if an NP swab should be collected. So if somebody, so it's not just doing the thing just because to test them if they got an infection, right? but based on your assessment, based exactly. on your judgment. So a guy who, you know, gets the vaccine and they have all the symptoms of an infection, but the doctor says, well... You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna take a nasal swab. Here, here's some medicine. It's just a side effect of the of the vaccine. How do you know? You don't. It's just an arbitrary uh, decision. Yeah, it's it's nuts. And one of the the craziest things I might have said this already, like how crazy one of the craziest things is. But one of the most remarkable things that I really found was that the study was mapped out to be a two year study. For example, to get more conclusive data. This was what they the terms they used but it hasn't been remotely close to two years yet. That's the craziest part about it, is that it's mapped out to be a two-year study, but it came out into the market and in people's bodies within a couple of months. Well, I have a little bit of different information about that. I thought the study was designed, maybe that might've been the early uh, plans, but ultimately they decided to terminate the study when they reached a specific number of cases in the control group. Why do they do it that way? I think for ethical reasons, if they started to see that cases piling up in the control group, at that point, they'd have to end the study because it's unfair to keep the control group from the benefits of the treatment, right? You're already right. That was just in a follow-up to see if there's any side effects long-term. But you said exactly, the trial itself is is really over. But yeah. that's the part that I wanted to, to talk to you about. And you've already kind of answered this, but we don't know any long-term ramifications. We just don't know yet. And this is the, the big part of the conversation that I really think people should know about which is, you know, Moderna, for example, the mRNA technology, they haven't had anything approved prior to this. It's literally since December of 2020, this technology has never been approved for use in humans, like at wide scale like this. It's a new thing. And so now we get into this conversation about how does it work, right? We've got, you know, just from basic, uh, you know, science class in high school, uh, DNA to RNA to protein. And so we've okay. got something to kind of interject in there and kind of, encourage ourselves to create this spike protein on their own, yeah. right? And then they they replicate, and then we get an immune response to go and try to target these infected cells, seemingly infected, synthetically infected cells. And with that immune response, we've got all these different immune system weapons, but one of those is antibodies, for example. It's a great fairy tale. Too bad none of it's true. None of it. Everything you just said is all anecdotal. It's all theoretical. It's all, and it's bad theory. There's good theory, like the way I put them together inductively up from evidence. And then there's the bad theory where you, you just something that's convenient, you know, and you can sell and market and then, oh, we'll, we'll cherry pick some evidence for it. That's that's just what you described. And that's my fourth article that's coming out in peer review. Uh, that's being peer reviewed right now. And let's talk about messenger RNA. How much time do we have? I can go on forever. I don't care. We need this. This is the most important conversation of our time. So right the now. vaccine is supposed to work by, as you said, creating the, uh, having the body create the S protein, which is the handle that's on the coronavirus, okay, which helps allow it to be targeted by the immune system. And you do that 
by supplying the genetic code to the S protein so that the cells can make that S protein, right? And that genetic code is stored in, we call RNA. RNA is transcribed from DNA. The DNA contains the genes in the cell, the nucleus of the cell, right? That's just the blueprint to tell the cell how to make proteins. That's all it is, right? Because your cell's made up of proteins. And every day, by the way, you your cell loses some proteins and it replaces them with new proteins. So it's a continuous process, okay? So the proteins aren't made in the nucleus. They're made outside the nucleus in the cell, in the cytoplasm, in an organelle called the ribosome. So the ribosome needs a copy of that blueprint, right? That's the job of the RNA. The DNA unzips itself and there's an RNA created that transcribes, transcribes the uh, code, genetic code, and then it leaves the nucleus, the RNA does, as a messenger to the ribosome. That's why it's called messenger RNA, right? That's all it does. It's just a postman or a postwoman. Once the RNA is delivered to the ribosome, the ribosome reads it and then collects the amino acids to synthesize a string of protein. What happens to that RNA when it's done? I'll tell you what happens. It's waste. It's a waste product. It doesn't do anything. It's not live. It's just a copy of genes. That's all it is, right? It's fragmented into eight fragments and it's packaged as waste into a bubble in the cytoplasm called an exosome. Now, exosomes have all kinds of functions. One of them is to remove waste from the cell. Scientists, virologists have looked at those exosomes and they can't tell the difference between an exosome packed with a genetic waste and a non-infectious virus. They're the same. It could be, now, it's not proven yet that what we call viruses are really just waste products of cells. The repackaged, fragmented, RNA of the cell that's been used. And in the exosome, it's transported out of the cell into what we call viromes. You've heard of the microbiome? Well, there are viromes also made up of virions or virions or viruses. And those also get transported out of the body through the gastrointestinal tract and through the nasal pharynx as part of the mucosal immune system. If you're in the the uh, mucosal uh, um, immune system becomes backed up. Those viruses can't be shed. They, they can't leave the system. So it looks like they're it looks like they're replicating. They're not. They're just accumulating. They're dead. How can they replicate? Well, they're they're genetic material, so they get into the genes of the cell and the cell. No, that's all fantasy. You know, it sounds good. It does, there's no proof of that. There's no evidence of that. What's happening is things that cause your mucosal system to work less effectively, remove all that garbage less effectively. And that makes it appear like they're accumulating. Well, it is accumulating, but they're not replicating. It's like if you walk out on the street during a garbage strike, a garbage collection strike, and you're walking down the street and say, oh, look, honey, the garbage is replicating. It's getting bigger. It's not replicating. It's just not being removed because the system is breaking down, right? 
So instead of the viral infections causing the problem, the problem is causing the viral infections. It's causing the accumulation of these waste products of the cell, these genetic waste products. That's all it is. Hmm. Now, let's, let's, this is theoretical, but it challenges, it's out-of-the-box type of thinking that challenges the whole paradigm of virology, which is what this whole pandemic is predicated upon. So that article, my, that article was going to go into more detail about that. So we're looking at dietary factors that suppress the nasal mucosal system, immune system. That's called nutritional immunology. It's a new field. And one of the factors I'm looking at is sodium chloride. Sodium chloride paralyzes the little fingers in your nasal mucosal system, the cilia. And when that happens, you get that backed up you know, accumulation of the viruses and other things too that normally are breathed out. And if so happens that sodium chloride also causes uh, symptoms when it's delivered in an in intravenous saline solution, like fevers, shortness of breath, um, pulmonary edema, so that you get clogging of the air sacs in the lungs with fluid. This is all related to coronavirus when you think about it. And the vaccines in the placebo group are all saline solutions. 100% saline, okay? And we know the adverse effects of saline are the same as those aches and pains and fevers and things that we were talking about from the coronavirus. Now, this is just evidence I'm not making any hard conclusions, but think about how this all, what this is all pointing to. There's something here that we need to investigate further. It may be that we're not catching viral infections. Sure, you can breathe in somebody else's virus, but the, the, the literature is pretty, pretty uh, ad adamant that it takes more than just breathing in a few variants to overcome barriers to infection. You have an, an immune system. You can't infect people that way. This was proven in 1918 by the United States Navy. The United States Navy during the epidemic then, or the pandemic, took about 60 sailors in Boston, brought them into a hospital with severe cases of influenza back then, and brought the people, the sailors, into direct contact with the patients. The patients would cough on them would breathe on them, their sputum would be injected into these people, into the sailors. Nothing happened. They replicated the study in San Francisco. 60 more sailors, same thing. Nothing happened. They published the results. We don't know what happened. Nothing happened. We have clinical evidence that that infection, that problem is caused by something else. You can't just catch an infection. You can catch a virus in the sense that you're breathing in, but that's not the same as catching an infection. The infection comes from within, from other things that are impairing your immune system. And one of those things that impairs your immune system causes that aggregation of the viruses in your nasal pharynx, right? So you look at all this information and you think, are people coming to the wrong conclusions about all this? And my opinion is, yeah. They are, and we need to look at more of this. Now, getting back to the vaccine, 
that messenger RNA, because this goes all the way back to the messenger RNA, right? If you inject messenger RNA into a cell, the cell immediately destroys it. It's foreign substance. It doesn't belong there. It has its own messenger RNA. Who are you to put your own, you know, to put somebody, somebody else's in there? It doesn't work that way. So they had to figure out a way to protect the uh, messenger RNA. You know how they did it? They used these nanolipid uh, particles. So they encased it in fat, basically. Okay, and guess what? It wasn't being uh, decomposed. Now, uh, let me ask you something. Now that you know a little bit about cell biology, how is the ribosome supposed to translate the, G, the, the genetic code in that nanolipid particle without stripping it apart? It can't. This whole thing, this whole mechanism is ridiculous. It doesn't work. If you were a seventh grade science student and you came up with a project with this as your project, I'd have to say, go back and rethink this because it doesn't make any sense. Does it matter? Well, let's see, with a relative risk reduction of 95% when it's really just a 1% absolute risk reduction, who cares? It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Call it whatever you want. You're still going to wind up selling it anyway. Stop me at any time. <laughs> Now, this is beyond powerful. And you just said something that is really overlooked in our way of testing today, which is built around being much more ethical. And this is the fact that we're talking about back in the earlier part of the 1900s right. and proactively exposing people to the, the stuff that we believe makes people sick. Like exactly. in, in none of these clinical trials are we doing any such thing. We're not ex actually exposing anybody to a virus to demonstrate any protective effect. You right. know, it's just like, it's all—it's so much we don't know, but it, what's communicated is that we act like we know, and it's so far from being the case. I know. Those are called challenge studies, by the way. And we've always had challenge studies, and they usually all always fail. They really do. It's just there are too many other factors that go into making you sick. And now people are gonna say, well, that Navy uh, experiment, that was influenza. This is not influenza, remember? This is 10 times more deadly. You know, so they'll use that excuse. Yeah, you know, and ex specifically talking about exposing people to things that are dangerous, if you look into a company's history like Pfizer, you know, just go to Dr. Google and look up Pfizer and Nigerian children and have a field day and look at what that looks like. But what I wanna really communicate for everybody, because you just mentioned this, we really just kind of, turn off our logic and put our faith into these entities as if they are really doing something that is righteous and, and of high efficacy. When in reality, a company like Pfizer, for example, is a consistent committer of felonies with all of the different lawsuits, all of the different deaths association. For example, Pfizer had to pay out $1.2 billion to settle lawsuits stemming from side effects of PrimPro, it caused women to develop breast cancer. But what's built into their metrics is they already know that there's going to be these lawsuits. So they just, they're more so looking at the money that they can be, that can be made. Now, I'm just sharing one. If you dig in here and you see consistently again and again and again, all the different, all the different and this is with normal, quote, normal FDA approval, and then so many people having these dangerous side effects or dying in relationship to taking these medications. And this is the point. If we take all of this into context and we understand, and of course, you know, if we're talking about pharmaceuticals, we can be looking at a simple cost benefit analysis. Maybe the benefit does outweigh the potential danger. And I can, I can sit with that. 
But when we have data, like you can go and look at some of, some of these lawsuits themselves and you can see the emails that were captured where they know, they know that the drug is dangerous. They know that they have some clinical evidence that people are probably going to die and they put it on the market anyways. And then we believe that these companies are looking out for our best interests. This is where the real problem is. And here's the point. So, and this is what I want to talk to you about. We take all of that into context. So we've got 1.2 billion paid out just in that one individual that for that one drug, not to mention the hundreds of other drugs. So we've got that, but then we have this stratosphere of vaccines that don't come with that legal obligation. And so a company would see that, a, drug, a pharmaceutical company, where we can produce these vaccines without any legal liability if anything goes wrong. That would in, immediately bring up a logical bias of like, how, why would I take your product if I don't even have, there's not even a liability if, you, if, if I am hurt. Not to so, say that I will be, but it should still be in place. Why does that not exist? Okay. From my understanding, we have vaccines because the public demands it. From my understanding, the pharmaceutical companies knew it was a losing proposition. They didn't want to do it. They said, if we're going to do this, then you have to you know, give us protection. And the government said, sure. Why? Because this is what the people wanted. To me, the root of the problem is that the people need to be educated. They need to understand that diseases aren't caused by lack of vaccines. Think of all the diseases treated by vaccines. Is any one of them caused by the lack of a vaccine? No. What's different about this? Nothing. And yet people say, we'll get the vaccine and we won't have to worry again. Really? What have you done to remove the cause of the problem? Nothing. You're living in a fantasy world. And I don't want to live in a world where it's being ruled by people that are living in a fantasy. Because I'm living in reality. I don't know about you. These vaccines, what can I say, are just, you know, that they're the cost of doing business for the pharmaceutical companies. If they get sued, that's just their business expense. That's all. What does this have to do with health? It has nothing to do with health. The people need to be educated about this, you know. And how many people are looking at what's causing the coronavirus? Now, I just went into that whole big spiel about, you know, what is messenger RNA? And, you know, how is it a waste product? And how is it packaged into an exosome? And how is that like a virus? And what happens to that? And what causes it to be backed up? And what, what if those causes are also making you sick too? Then that means that the infection itself is not causing the sickness. The infection is the result of the sickness. So what are we doing about investigating the determinants of that sickness? The answer is nothing. And we got a big problem. Yeah. As long as people think the vaccine ends the problem, sorry, you're in a fantasy world. We still got the same problem. Because you know what? I'm in right of putting an end to these. I'm in favor of putting an end to the lockdowns, you know, and but that doesn't mean I'm in favor of exposing people to diseases. That's not it at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. We're doing all the things wrong to protect people, not the right way. We're doing them all the wrong way. We got to start looking and you'll like this. We have to start looking at our lifestyles. Because those are the causes of these problems. Not the lack of drugs, 
not the lack of lockdowns, not the lack of vaccines. I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> it is. It is so powerful. So powerful. So just in recap, you know, legislation was passed. And this was not that long ago to basically shield vaccine manufacturers against any legal liability uh, related to injuries or deaths that occur from their vaccinations, which again, it's a public demand, but it's based right. on education of the public. This is even how it was able to bypass the even so-called stringent me metrics for approval with the FDA and this emergency access, this yeah. emergency use. It was demanded by the people This and also this political which is the craziest part when this is political pressure and that's why something gets approved, which has never something? been done before. Absolutely. That's why, that's why I got so angry. This is a rat's nest of anecdotal, unsupported, you know, just specul speculative uh, guesswork. None of it is science. None of it is evidence-based. It has to come to an end. And it's only gonna come to an end if people are informed about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your brilliance. Thank you, Sean, for the opportunity to put this all in front of people. Everything I said, don't take anything you know I've said on face value. Look it up because that's what I did. I'm not out here expressing opinions, although I do have opinions, of course, like everybody else, but they're based upon evidence. It's the evidence that brought me to do what I'm doing right now and to write the articles that I've written and hopefully for the good, that people can gain some insights and some understanding about how these problems develop and the right way and the wrong way to address them. It's so important right now. See, right now, that's the number one priority. I feel we're doing it the wrong way. We, haven't, we still have the coronavirus to deal with, but we're dealing with it the wrong way. That is another problem on top of the problem of the coronavirus. So one problem at a time. And then once we figure out, okay, Ron, we won't do it that way anymore. So what's the right way? Then we can start asking the right questions because you can't get the right answers until you start asking the right questions, right? Then we can start talking about things like uh, nutritional immunology and how that's related to these diseases and how we can protect the people who are the most vulnerable from this disease. That's what this is really all about. We're going the opposite direction. We're not protecting anybody. We're just doing more damage. We have to take this one problem at a time. And I know we can solve this. Absolutely. Well, you just, listen, I can't let you go now. I've got to ask you one more question. Okay, sure. <laughs> this is going to come up for folks. I know it's come up for me. And as I was watching all of this uh, progress from the very beginning, you know, I saw the data coming out of Italy and I saw, you know, pre-existing diseases being a big issue here. And I stayed on top of the data when the, locks, when the lockdowns happened and thereafter, and looking at sedentary behavior, looking at the increased consumption of processed foods, the higher rates of um, you know, uh, mental health issues, the list goes on and on, the unemployment, all these different things transpiring. And I was saying very early on, just citing the data and looking at what we, are, what we already had previously and getting some estimates on what these numbers could look like for, for excess deaths, not related to COVID, but from the treatment our societal's treatment of COVID. Right. And I was just like, you know, in the long term, like this is gonna be a really bad, the ramifications are gonna be pretty negative, but in the short term, they can be pretty bad as well. And so my question that I wanna pose you, if we know, for example, that 
this issue that we're facing as a society, if you go back and cite some of the data, so there's two parts. Number one, recap your the study that you published looking at uh, the, the comparison with the flu that was used by Fauci to SARS-CoV-2. Can you cite that and also look at, well, where are we at then with the excess deaths and how can we explain that? Right. And you just mentioned nutritional immunotherapy. We have psychoneuro endocrinology. We have psychoneuroimmunology. Right. And understanding all of these different things, our life has been so changed and become so constrictive and dangerous right. that that can itself contribute to some of the fallout. So part one, recap your the study that you published. And part two, how can you explain the, the excess deaths that we have seen, in fact, from everything that's taking place? Okay, so people don't think that this is influenza. Why? Because they were told it wasn't influenza. Who told them? Experts who are not knowledgeable enough about this. They're not epidemiologists. They don't understand clearly the difference between case fatality rate and infection fatality rate more than just in a superficial manner. So that when they actually do some calculations, they wind up just scaring people and telling people, if you're overreacting, you're doing the right thing. Since when is overreacting ever doing the right thing? You need new experts, okay? It's time for new experts. That's number one. As far as all the deaths, there's two, two uh, causes. One, as you mentioned, we have to sooner or later drill down to the actual determinants of why people are getting sick with these types of respiratory diseases. Again, the cause of these diseases is not lack of treatments. It has to do with our lifestyle. Specifically, it has to do with things, as you mentioned, like nutritional immunology. And I have more information coming out on that. But there's another reason why the deaths appear so high. It's because of our broadened case definitions. According to the World Health Organization, as long as you have a positive PCR test, even if you have no symptoms, you are diseased. You're sick. You're sick with a disease, and if you die of something else, and you die with that sickness, that sickness, that coronavirus disease is also listed on your death certificate, even though it had nothing to do with the real reason why you died. SARS, severe acute respiratory sy syndrome, was taken out of the case definition. It was taken out of the name of the virus by the World Health Organization. So why are we saying that people who don't have severe acute respiratory syndromes are dying of the coronavirus? That's a big problem. As soon as you did that, now it's opened up to everybody. You know what? When I looked at the amount of people who died by the end of the flu season, which was last October, and I only counted up the deaths that had anything to do with severe acute respiratory syndrome, and then taking into account the number of times, you know, comorbid conditions for each case. In my exploratory data analysis, I eliminated about two-thirds of the deaths right there. Because two-thirds of the deaths have nothing to do with severe acute respiratory syndrome. That's the name of the virus. How can you say you've died of that virus when what you died of has nothing to do with severe acute respiratory syndrome? So that explains, uh, as an answer to your question, why are the death rates so high? 
They're artificially high. Now, people are going to look at the overall mortality for the year and see if there really were more deaths or we did we just move over the influenza deaths and all these other deaths and just call them COVID-19. I mean, I think it's the latter, right? That's exactly what we did. But you can't really depend upon those types of mortality studies, again, because there are so many confounding factors. Uh, mortality rates from year to year change because the populations change, right? Uh, demographics of the populations change. People like me now, more of the older people are now in the higher risk category, more so than we were five years ago. All these things change. There are more people in the population. Uh, the governments and, and the healthcare systems and how you count up all the deaths and how you categorize them, everything changes. You know, and also that's why it's difficult to make comparisons between countries. Countries in different latitudes have different uh, uh, reactions to upper respiratory diseases. I'm up in Canada. You can't compare us to, to Miami, which is a subtropical, subtropical region. It's not the same. So you have to take all these other uh, confounding factors in, into consideration. And it's almost, uh, it's almost I'm not going to say it's a waste of time, but I don't really put much into those types of studies. Let's talk about the things that we can control right now. Okay, let's talk about how lockdowns are affecting our lives every day and where that came from and how we need to expose that and outlaw them, outlaw them so we never have them again. Now that's something that we can do. And then we can continue on going on to the other problem, that coronavirus and any other the variants that come up. By the way, the variants, remember I talk about that fragmentation inside the exosomes? So think of, think of that as like a garbage can, okay? And you have, the, the let's say, the banana peels on top of the soup cans, right? What if you switch the fragments around? Now you have the soup cans on top of it. That's a new variant. It's still a garbage can. It's, it's no different. It's ridiculous. But no, we've never seen it before, so run for the hills. You know, where are the epidemiologists saying, hey, relax. It's just, it's not any more of a big problem than it's, we've always had before we ever did the law. So we need to straighten all this out. And it's going to take a little bit of time. But we need to stand up for what we know is right. And it's not right that we are living now in a totalitarian society. When they say, we're all in this together, yeah, we're all in this together. We're in a totalitarian society together. They say, stay safe. Yeah, safe from what? From truth and knowledge? Well, I can get truth and knowledge from, from the media, can't I? Uh-uh. <laughs> they censored that. So, you know, we're all in this together. So there you go. That's what that's all we get from these politicians and public health people, right? And they will never, never admit they're wrong. We have to resist and fight for our freedoms and our rights. That's why you're so important right now, Dr. Brown. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your your insights, for sharing your data, for sharing your passion and helping to get us educated because truly we're the ones entrusted with making the change. It's really up to us. And thank you so much for being a part of this and really helping to spark a change in our thinking. Thank you, Sean. Awesome. This topic obviously deserves a lot more analysis and we'll have all the different studies for you in the show notes. So make sure to check those out. We're living at an incredibly important time. We're really writing the story of our society moving forward. How we're going to handle situations like this. We're writing that story right now. And so it's also important to understand who are we looking towards who are we leaning on for solutions in this time period? And looking at first and foremost, and being very honest about it, 
has what has transpired thus far, has it been working? Because right now, here in the United States, we are the sickest society, self-inflicted, in the history of humanity. Right now, we have about 242 million of our citizens are overweight or obese. Right now, at this very moment. We have about 60% of our citizens have some degree of heart disease right now. We have about 130 million of our citizens have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes right now. And the issues just keep getting worse and worse and worse with no end in sight. And these chronic pre-existing diseases have really set us up for our rampant issues with infectious diseases because that's where we're really seeing the, the heaviest weight taking place. And this isn't being talked about. Getting to the heart of the solution, making us more resilient as a society, as a culture. And there's been so many excuses made, obviously, about we can't get people to do this. We can't get people healthier overnight. It's been over a year. There's been hardly any conversation about addressing the real underlying issues with our society's health crisis. And I believe that we can start to steer the conversation in the right direction. And it's going to be up to us. And with that said, one of the things that we highlighted in this episode was the fact that, again, according to the CDC, 94% of the folks who lost their lives in association with SARS-CoV-2, we know this already have four pre-existing chronic diseases and or comorbidities listed on their death certificate. Four. This is crazy. And this issue is not being talked about. The highest incidence being those that we refer to as lifestyle-related diseases, being hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and obesity, being kind of the biggest drivers of our susceptibility. And yet again, it's not being talked about. One of the recent CDC reports have found that about 80% of the folks who've been hospitalized in association with SARS-CoV-2 were clinically obese or overweight. And if we look at just the demographic of healthcare workers who are definitely hardest hit as far as all different vocations, being there on the front lines, being there interacting and having close proximity to sickness, we would think that there will be some significant numbers, of course. But what's not talked about is that 90% of the healthcare workers hospitalized with SARS-CoV-2 had one or more pre-existing chronic diseases. It's the biggest susceptibility. It's not 50%. It's not 10%, which we could be just like, you know what? 10% of people had these issues. It's not even 50, 90%, the vast majority. And yet we're not talking about this. 75% of our healthcare workers hospitalized were clinically obese or overweight. And we're not talking about this issue. These are things that we can do something about, but we keep on window dressing with the next latest, hottest new drug. And I would be all for it if it was effective. But as you can see, just as prior to all of this happening, the companies that are controlling this conversation continuously use misleading tactics to make it look like they're doing something, when in reality, it's very different. So as we talked about, and what was highlighted, and the data exists, you can go and look it up for yourself, but it, what was highlighted in Dr. Brown's study, his peer-reviewed study, was the fact that, okay, we've got this 95% effectiveness We've got this 94.1% effectiveness with Moderna, 95% effectiveness with Pfizer. But in reality, that's relative risk reduction. The actual absolute risk reduction in the population with Pfizer's vaccine is less than 
And folks simply don't know this. They haven't had the opportunity to have informed consent to know that, because for me, again, 95% sounds amazing. Less than 1% sounds troubling, but that exists. That's the absolute risk reduction. The same thing with the Moderna, 1.1% absolute risk reduction. The numbers exist. How are they able to pass this? They weren't. It's not FDA approved. How are they able to pass this with the normal bodies of approval? Well, using the relative risk reduction, using that number, highlighting that and making this other number disappear as if it doesn't exist, but it does. You deserve to know about it. And these companies, they're doing the same patterns of behavior that they've always done. And so this is who we're looking to for the solution, when in reality, Pfizer, for example, had to pay out a $1.2 billion settlement stemming from side effects causing women to develop breast cancer. $1.2 billion. That's just one. There are so many lawsuits. It's insane. Purposefully, knowing that these side effects can happen. Pfizer was also caught testing an experimental drug on Nigerian children. Lives were lost, and it took 15 years for those families to be compensated. Pfizer also agreed to sponsor health projects in Nigeria and creating funds to help to compensate those infected. That was $35 million that they paid out. Scraps to them. But again, most folks don't know about this. But here's one of the biggest things. Pfizer had to pay the largest healthcare fraud settlement in the history of the Department of Justice paying $2.3 billion after pleading guilty to a felony violation of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. It's kind of like somebody murders a bunch of people. And you're like, oh, it's, you're not going to murder anymore, are you? You're done murdering, right? What are we doing? We're looking to these organizations that have a history, a massive history of criminal activity, of fraud, of bribery, of knowingly putting unsafe drugs into circulation for our citizens. Where do you think the opioid crisis that is destroying hundreds of thousands of lives every year, killing, where are, they, where are the drugs coming from? Knowingly putting these things on the market. But that's just Pfizer. Let's talk about another one of these massive multi-billion dollar entities that we're putting our trust into to have a strain of efficacy and to protect us. Let's look at another one. According to the Justice Department, Johnson & Johnson agreed to pay $2.2 billion in criminal and civil fines to settle lawsuits demonstrating that it improperly promoted an anti-psychotic drug to older adults, children, and people with developmental disabilities. As part of the settlement, Johnson & Johnson has agreed to plead guilty to a criminal misdemeanor acknowledging that it improperly marketed their drug to older adults for unapproved uses. It did not admit wrongdoing for the civil portion of the settlement, which involves claims that the company promoted the drug's use in children and in the developmentally disabled, as well as accusations that it paid kickbacks to doctors and pharmacists in exchange for writing more prescriptions. The company agreed to pay criminal fines of 48 million dollars and the civil penalties of 1.72 billion dollars civil but they didn't admit to any wrongdoing but they pay 1.72 billion that's the beauty of the system they can still make it look like they cannot admit to things they can manage and shift things around so that they don't 
plead guilty to anything substantial and just pay it out, pay people off. And most people just want something for the damage that they've seen with their families being destroyed. That's why they continue to do it because we allow it. We allow this behavior to continue. And here's the truth in this stratosphere with vaccines and why I, I was just sitting back and waiting for enough data to be compiled to give some hard evidence as to the efficacy or things to be cautious of, but it is all so murky and really understanding if there is any downstream side effects, we don't know. We don't know. This is why we need to be much more cautious about having this one size fits all approach, this one size fits all vaccination movement to take place and not really understanding what are the downstream effects and just taking it at face value that this is safe or that this is advantageous in any way. Because at the end of the day, if we look at where the root of the technology is going, right? We've got this mRNA technology, which seems to be incredible on the surface, but we don't know long-term what the ramifications might be. We simply do not know. If we understand where it's operating and in cell replication, for example, when we get that synthetic spiked protein, that protein then, if we, we're going to have this replication, this cell replication process to start printing out more of it, potentially, that's how it's designed to be, and get that stimulation of the immune system, that response. But in that cell replication process, could something go wrong? If we use cancer, for example, when we start to have abnormalities take place with cells not replicating properly or hitting the hay flick limit where they are supposed to stop replicating and they continue on, right? They don't have that programmed cell death, that apoptosis. What can cause a cell to do that? Could this intervention potentially create some abnormalities in cell replication? We don't know. When we have a cancer tumor that we can monitor through our normal uh, technology that we have today of, of measuring the manifestation of a tumor, it could be years before we can actually measure and notice that a tumor's there. Years before we actually know. Do we know? Is it a possibility? Yes, it's a possibility that this could be a side effect five years, 10 years from now. We don't know. We don't know. But everybody's running out. Not everybody. But a lot of folks are running out and they're not asking questions. They're taking it at face value that these entities are looking out for them. I wish it was true. This is what makes me different. I wish it was true. Like I would be happy if it was true. I would be, I would be over the moon excited at, at if these publicly traded pharmaceutical companies really were looking out for our best interests and the people working within it with most of the time being really, really good people very smart people. They're going into these organizations, they're going into learning about pharmaceutical drugs and pharmacology to help people to save lives. That's what they're doing it for. However, we touched, we touched on this a little bit, which is this education fallacy that we really have in understanding if we're training very smart people to think the wrong way about things, to continue to treat symptoms of diseases and not address the underlying root cause of the disease, we become a nation that is hyper-focused on treating the symptoms of disease and looking for a quote cure to a disease when all you have to do is remove the cause of the disease, which according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, the leading cause of our chronic disease epidemics, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, 
is poor diet. It's the leading cause. But that's on the surface. That's It's great that they admit or acknowledge that, but there are deeper issues here. Because poor diet, what is that? It's a physiological stressor. That's just one of the stressors, one of the many that we're exposed to that is incredibly abnormal that our DNA has never experienced before, All right? Our genes are expecting certain things from us. And when we don't provide these inputs of movement, of sun exposure to produce vitamin D, and all the other things that sun exposure does for, for us, if we don't have inputs of high quality sleep and recovery, we know, again, the Mayo Clinic uh, did a fascinating study in finding that just a short stint of sleep deprivation directly increases our susceptibility to contracting a viral infection. But there hasn't been a movement towards, you know, in popular media, towards making sure our nation is sleeping well, or even putting any emphasis on that whatsoever. There's been none. There's been a movement to get another drug, which again, they're using that same manipulative tactic to make it seem like this is the end all be all. This is some kind of savior. And when we talk about, and it's free for everybody, but it's not free. If our government is paying, that means we're paying for it. And they're set to make somewhere in the ball, we're talking tens of billions of dollars easily right out of the gate. But two of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in this, they're all primed to make somewhere in the ballpark of 60 billion right out of the gate. Not to mention all of the booster shots are gonna be coming. Because conveniently, it's coming out right at this time where we're moving into to summer, you know, out of spring and into summer, where you're gonna see the, the rates of symptomatic infections going down, all that stuff. But guess what happens when the quote, cold and flu season comes back around? You already know what's gonna happen. We're gonna get another spike. And what are we gonna do? We're gonna lock down again? Is this what we're gonna continue doing? And also, that's gonna be the big push. And you're, here, you're hearing it here first. It's gonna be the big push for the booster shots because it's all these different variants, right? And this is, I literally said this at the very beginning. At the very beginning, we released episodes of the show and I was highlighting how already, and this was back in May, May and June, and we already had multiple confirmed manifestations of mutations of the virus back then. This is how it works. That's how it works. They're go it's going to continue to mutate, right? That's how it's become endemic. It's no longer really even pandemic or epidemic. It's endemic. It's integrated itself into our population. Right now, whatever number we have, we know through epidemiology, we've got at least 10 times more of the population has the infection. Or has, Even when we talk about infection, are we talking about symptomatic or just simply contracting a virus and your body responding, making the immunological adaptation? But we know 10 times more people in the population have the thing. That's any basic principle of epidemiology, 10 to 15 times. We just know what's been tested, the folks that have been tested. All right, so I want you to really just keep an eye out for what's to come, but the good news is that we can do something about this. History is not written in stone, but it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a big movement towards what's real, towards what's sustainable, towards taking back control of our thinking, logic, critical analysis, understanding data, and these are things that hopefully moving forward are taught to our children. You know, critical thinking has been more and more bled out of the system and it's more thinking within the construct of rote memorization and putting people into boxes. And right now we're facing a time where there's such a lack of critical thinking, with, but there's such an abundance of data, there's such an abundance to access, but most people aren't really 
looking at things in an in-depth way. We don't have a lot of deep thinking. There's a lot of skimming. There's a lot of little brain snacks. And then we run with it. Instead of taking time to really sit with information, think about it from multiple perspectives. And that's why conversations like this are, are so important because they spark that thinking. They, they spark conversation. They spark looking at things from another dynamic. And one of the big takeaways that I really hope that you bring with you, the organizations that we're really entrusting with our health and the health of our society right now routinely pay out billions of dollars in fines and settlements because of the damage that they do to our society. That's the truth. And so not to say that something good can't come from that, but we have to have a more, much more balanced perspective because the truth is it takes a minor miracle to actually prove that they did harm. So when we're talking about the billions paid out, many of these studies, you know, if you go and look at the data, lots of folks who have claims, they're not getting any of these settlements. That's because they have the most powerful legal teams on planet Earth who are already well-versed in making it look like it's something else other than their drug that caused the problem. The same thing is happening right now. If you're paying attention to not just the mainstream media, which some local news reports will share, you know, folks having adverse reactions, folks, you know, unfortunately losing their lives in the context of what's happening right now with this new drug intervention. It's a minority, let's keep that in context, but it exists nonetheless. And the routine analysis, the routine statement used when they have the medical professional come on is that, well, there's really no way to tell whether or not this was vaccine related until we do further testing. There's really no way to tell. And that's the thing, that's the loophole that they use. But that's not used with SARS-CoV-2. If anything looks like, sounds like, smells like SARS-CoV-2. We don't even, there, thousands, thousands of diagnoses have been based on just an assessment of symptoms and not actually based on clinical testing, right? And then we get into conversations of clinical testing and the PCR test and all the different conflicting things going on there. It was just a big mess. And in times when things are really messy, it creates an opportunity for us to clean things up, for us to really get face-to-face -face with what's causing the mess and to do something different. And so even though we're experiencing a lot of turbulence right now, this is a time for us to band together, not in a superficial way where folks are coming together and just following the, the words of a celebrity because with this not being approved by the FDA, the pharmaceutical companies can't legally market the drug themselves. So they've hired out marketing companies. They're reaching out and getting celebrity endorsements and letting the people do the marketing for them. And that's the most powerful form of marketing when you don't even have to do the thing. You get people to do it for you. And so you, you can just sit back. And this is how the legislation with vaccines came to be what it is today already, where pharmaceutical companies have immunity if anything goes wrong from their product. It's because of the groundswell of importance drilled into the minds of the citizens that we need those things, but they're, why, if, if they're not risky, why not take legal liability? It just makes logical sense. And so just think about that a little bit. And so I'm not talking about that kind of banding together where we see the celebrity endorsement and we're just like, oh, this is all good. 
This is a time to stop outsourcing our thinking and to really band together in a much more sustainable way, in a way that's based on principles of health, foundations that are built on health and not foundations that are built on disease and the treatment of symptoms, doing the things that our genes expect us to do. All right, the inputs that healthy cell re replication require in the first place. Real food, the cells themselves are made of food. Our immune cells, our NK cells, our neutrophils, they're all made, literally made from the food that we eat and the water that we drink and the air that we breathe. These, these are the things that make them up. It matters. And understanding even in that same context with that input for healthy cell replication, healthy expression of our, of our DNA, genetic expression, we need real food. We need adequate sleep, rest, and recovery. Th these are epigenetic controllers. We need adequate management of stress because as of now, and we'll put another study for you in the show notes, somewhere in the ballpark of 80% of all physician visits are for stress-related illnesses because our lack of sleep is a stressor. Our abnormal diet is a stressor. Our lack of movement and sedentary behavior is a stressor. And each and every one of these items has gotten progressively worse throughout this experience. And so when we're thinking about the context of the excess deaths that would come up in association with this, yes, we have a problem with the virus. But if you look at the data, the whole story is not there. It's not accounting for all the abnormal changes that we've been inundated with, where we're now eating worse than we ever have, moving less than we ever have, sleeping more erratically than we ever have, more stress than we ever have, in one of the most recent papers, identifying the psychosomatic effects of COVID-19 and looking at how it increases our incidence of poor outcomes. Number one, susceptibility to viral infections, but also poor outcomes and having severe reactions because of the pro-inflammatory state that's created in the body when we are stressed because our thoughts create chemistry in our bodies. Every thought that we think has correlating chemistry that's released into our bodies that are more powerful than anything we can even realize. But that's not given any credit in this conversation as well. Have we been put in a, in a situation where we get, quote, scared to death? And if this isn't even a part of the conversation, we're missing out on where science is really at. And we're doing the same old thing that we've been doing. We've got an issue. Do we target the symptom of the issue with drugs? Right now, 70% of our citizens are already on pharmaceutical medications, yet we're the sickest nation in the world. Nothing is getting better. Everything keeps getting progressively worse. And yet we're outsourcing our thinking to these same models of healthcare, the same systems of pharmaceutical industry and their dominant control over so much that we're exposed to in our lives today, over media, over our healthcare system, our same systems of food and big food companies, processed food companies that have manipulated our citizens in so many different ways and led to these, again, greatest epidemics of disease, self-inflicted disease in human history. We're still looking towards those entities. It's time to take back control of our thinking, all right? That's the dominant way, but I know that a tipping point is close. This is why conversations like this are important. This is why I'm so grateful for you being a part of this movement. And if you could, make sure to share this out with the people that you care about and keep this conversation going. Think about things. Think about things rationally and have simple cost-benefit analysis for the choices that you make. This doesn't mean that taking an action towards a medication as a solution can't be effective. 
all right? However, we have to maintain a meta perspective. We have to maintain a sense of sovereignty. We have to maintain a sense of logical thinking. And most importantly, we need to maintain a sense of medical freedom and being able to make choices for ourselves and not based on this very strange societal pressure to do something that's not proven to be effective. Take back control of our minds. That's the mandate. I appreciate you so much for tuning into the show today. We've got some epic powerhouse shows coming your way very soon. We're not stopping. We're just going to keep it coming. Gas pedal down. Let's go. I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.